Anthropology and Technology podcast. I'm Dawn Walter, the founder of the Anthropology and Technology Conference, an annual meeting of minds from the social sciences, business and technology. Our aim? To champion responsible AI and the value that social scientists bring to the design and development of emerging tech. In this podcast series, we're talking with some of the innovative and inspiring people working in this space. Join us to hear their stories, discover their ambitions, and get under the surface of the great work they're doing to ensure emerging tech fulfills its incredible potential without having a detrimental effect on people's lives and society as a whole. We hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome back to the Anthropology and Technology Conference podcast. Today we are delighted to be talking to Martha Dark, who is speaking at the Hellstream at the conference on the 9th of October. Martha is the co-founder of Foxglove, a new NGO that exists to make tech fair for everyone. We are really looking forward to this episode, so let's go. Hi, so welcome Martha. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. Delighted to be talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So just to start off, could you tell us a bit about yourself? So what do you do and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So I'm a co-founder and director of a non-profit called Foxglove. We're a tech justice organisation. And my background prior to founding Foxglove, I worked at a legal charity in the UK called Reprieve, where I met my Foxglove co-founder, Corey. And there we worked on abuses in national security and the death penalty. Um, I've always been concerned about state power when it comes to the use of technology and surveillance. Um, And in the post-Snowden years, we've been very preoccupied with state power. Perhaps really we should have been equally concerned about the gigantic unchecked power of tech companies. Um, which hold more data about each of us than most states. So that's one of the reasons that we started Fox Club, really, to try and um, work on social justice and technology issues. You touched on there about Fox Club. What would you say your key mission and values are as an organisation? So when you set up, what were those the key things you wanted to do? We started Fox Club in June of last year. We work to build a world where the use of technology is fair for everyone. So when the, pow- when the powerful governments or companies misuse technology to oppress or exclude people, Fox Club investigates, litigates and campaigns to fix it. We focus on issues driven by the use of mass data. Um, I founded Fox Club with an amazing lawyer called Corey Crider. So at the moment, it's just the two of us, but we're shortly going to be joined by two more people. We have three areas of work. The first is how the government uses algorithms in public sector decision making. The second is the power of large technology platforms and the third is um, exports of abusive technology particularly biometric surveillance technology from Europe to other countries at the moment our work's focusing on sub-Saharan Africa for that part of our work. You investigate the unfair use attack and the challenge abuses of power which you've, you've mentioned what kind of ways do you investigate and where do the investigations tend to start? That's a really good question. I think the investigations generally tend to start from us seeing something in the media. So the example of that might be um, in last year, we saw an article in the Financial Times about the Home Office using a visa streaming algorithm. um, And we had some concerns about that. And so often, and I'll come on and talk about that more at a later point, 
but often it comes from something that we've seen or it might be a partner we work a lot with partner organizations it might be something that a partner organization flags to us often our investigations begin with trying to find out more information so FOIA freedom of information requests subject access requests um, interviews, we try and speak to people to better understand what's happening. We work closely with technologists to help us understand the technology that's in play. But it sounds very simple, but often the issue that we look into comes from, comes from, the, comes from something we've seen in the news. Okay. And can people get in touch with you? You know, obviously you see things in the news, but can, do individuals ever get in touch with you with anything they're concerned about? absolutely we're still very small and very new um so we don't have a huge um platform of people that are coming to us but as we grow and as our cases get more attention certainly people are beginning to come to us with issues definitely mm. so I, I noticed that fox club have recently been successful in putting pressure on the government to be transparent on the contracts they've made with private companies who want to access to nhs data on COVID 19 can you tell us a bit more about this and how your work has changed the situation? Yeah, certainly. So that's been a really interesting past month or so on that work. So in late March, at the height of the COVID-19 crisis, the government put a plot, a blog on the internet um, for what was called the COVID-19 data store. And that blog announced data deals with huge private companies, including some that you'll know, like Amazon and Microsoft and Google, but some that aren't perhaps so well known to your listeners, like Faculty AI and Palantir. Uh, Faculty is an artificial intelligence startup that's headed by Mark Warner, the brother of Ben Warner, who ran the data operations for the Dominic Cummings-led Vote Leave campaign. And Palantir is a company that was founded by billionaire and close Trump ally Peter Thiel. They're a data mining, mining firm best known for supporting the CIA counterinsurgency and intelligence operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more recently have been criticized for their support of immigration and customs enforcement deportations in the US. So those are the companies that are involved in the data store, which we, are, which we had concerns about. Yeah. So what is the data store? The purpose of the data store was to give policymakers a single source of truth about the pandemic. But we saw a couple of issues right from that blog, which is that the government had completely failed to explain how these data sets worked and importantly, what the involvement of these huge private companies was. You know, what de patient data did the companies have access to? What were the terms of the deal? What data was taken? How was it used? How or if individual privacy rights were, in were respected? And how the NHS as a publicly owned asset would be protected? So Foxlove teamed up with the journalism platform Open Democracy and started to ask some of those questions. Uh, I think I first sent the freedom of information request a couple of days after the blog had gone up. We didn't get any answers right away. Um, and at the time, the ICO had said that they didn't have the say, they weren't going to enforce um, in the same way during the pandemic. So we had no way of kind of getting answers to our request. So we threatened to sue um, with Open Democracy and some brilliant lawyers. And on the eve of the case being filed, the government emailed the contracts over. Uh, so we've been poring over the contracts for the last couple of weeks. And the documents show some interesting things. The most interesting, or one of the most interesting things perhaps, is that the terms of the deals were changed after our initial demands for transparency because the contracts initially had um, the, some of the companies grant, were granted intellectual property rights, including over the creation of the databases, and they were allowed to train their models on, on, the, on the data sets, and that was changed, which is great. 
Um, but just to add, as well as the victory being through the litigation, part of it was due to the public pressure we created um, with a campaign of, I think, about 14, 15,000 members of the public calling for transparency around the data deal. Um, so, the, but the work's not over yet. We've got more to do. We're combing through the documents. We're um, beginning to think about what our next steps might be. Our particular concern is that NHS data is one of the health service's biggest assets. And we're concerned that the government's relaxation of rule, procurement rules around the pandemic leads to other data transfers or contracts with data mining tech companies. Uh, for example, one of the companies involved in the data store faculty have been awarded seven, seven government contracts in the last 18 months. So we'll be taking a closer look at some of these things from here. That sounds like an amazing step forward. What will you say at the moment that you're going through the this document with fine tooth comb and the contracts? What will you do when you've done that? Is that something you'll report back on? Absolutely, yes. Our partners, Open Democracy, have done some initial analysis already, and that's available online. And we've also done some too. We've there's most of the information that we requested has been released, but we'll be we're following up with some specifics that we need. But I think yes, we'll, we'll definitely do some summaries of of what that means for and it for for the public, so that people can understand how their data is used within these um, uh, within the data store. That's great. And if we or our listeners wanted to go on and find that information, would they go to your website for that? Yes, if people are interested to hear more, you can visit Fox Club's website, which is foxglove.org.uk or opendemocracy.net have a series of interesting articles um, about the findings. So following on from that, I've been talking around health. What challenges do you think we'll face in the area of algorithmic decision making and health in the next five years or so? So... I'm particularly, as I've said, I'm particularly concerned about the role of private companies in creeping NHS privatisation. Mm -hmm. We've seen the level of power that Apple and Google have just in the last few weeks when the UK has changed um, the model that we've been that has been being discussed around the contact tracing app. And actually, the Apple and Google model is better from a privacy perspective. Um, but, you know, the UK spent a long time and a huge amount of money trying to make its own app work only to switch to Apple and Google's at a later date because we couldn't make it work any other way, other way. And I think we've also seen that with the data store. I'm concerned that once these companies bed in with the NHS, they're in there for the long haul and it will be much harder to untangle these companies from the NHS at the end of this pandemic. And I think it's a trend that we're seeing increasingly. I mentioned previously that faculty have won eight government contracts and you know, there needs to be more public debate and discussion, I think, about whether these are fit and proper partners for these public institutions. And I think lastly, I've got separate to the NHS privatisation issue, I've got concerns about the sharing of health data too. It's not impossible to imagine a world where, you know, this kind of sensitive data can be shared with or used to make decisions about insurance, for example. So I think um, there's a lot to be done in terms of, you know, a, the way that the government works with private companies where health data is concerned. And B, you know, what safeguards are in place to ensure that that data is safe and secure. Definitely. And on the topic of, you just mentioned there, the NHS contract, uh, contact tra tracing app, there have been concerns around this in terms of privacy risk and the way the data will be used. Um, what, are your, what are your views on this? 
So there's been, a, as I just touched on, there's been a really lively and interesting debate in the UK about contract, yeah. contact tracing right from the beginning of the pandemic. Will it work? In what circumstances? Who should do it? What would it look like? And then last week, the government made a huge U-turn and ditched the centralised coronavirus tracing app and shifted to a model, as I said, based on um, Apple and Google's. Yeah. And that switch is better because it's, it's, from a privacy perspective anyway, the difference briefly between centralized and decentralized is that the Apple and Google model means that the data sits on people's phones rather than in like a centralized data lake somewhere. But now it's unclear whether the app will include contact tracing at all. It's been suggested that it might just be used to record symptoms. So who knows what will happen from here and how, whether the app will play a role in slowing or stopping the spread. But the government have now settled on the model and there are you know, challenges and other decisions to make around there. But I think the thing to remember is that we can't app our way out of this crisis and tech isn't the answer. I think it just has to be one tool in the box where the response is concerned. Okay. That's really helpful to know, because as you say, it's definitely been a subject of debate over the last uh, few months or so. Um, you, I know that Foxglove are looking at how the government's using algorithmic decision-making in all areas of public sector. So obviously we talked about health. Are there any other particular issues that you're keen to address or that you're, that you're looking at at the moment? Absolutely. So one, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of our key areas of work is how the government uses algorithms and automated decision making in the provision of public services. So, you know, for us, that's across immigration, education, health, just to name a few. And perhaps I can tell you about one super interesting case we're working on at the moment, which we just filed last week with our partners, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, which is a we believe the UK's first case challenging an automated decision making process by government, which looks at um, a visa streaming tool that the Home Office uses. It categorizes applicants into a red queue, an orange queue and a green queue. And the which queue you're put in means that your application is processed differently. And we know that one factor that determines which queue you get put in is your nationality. So the Home Office has a secret list of countries that are far less likely to get a visa because they'll get put, people from those countries are far less likely to get a visa because they'll be put in the red queue. And so we've brought a judicial, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants have brought a judicial review with our supports to try and challenge that, the use of that. Um, but I think the government trying to use algorithms to try and improve efficiency and come up with systems that um, are you know, mean that they have that they're making the best use of public funds is brilliant. But I have two key issues with the way that the government's working with algorithms and, and is using data to make decisions at the moment. The first is that we know these algorithms result in bias, and I don't think that there's or some of the algorithms, and I don't think there's enough being done to address that. So we've seen companies realizing this too recently with IBM and others stopping offering facial recognition tools because of issues of racial bias. We've also seen that with the Home Office case, the algorithm discriminates on the basis of nationality. We know that. And which nationality you have shouldn't lead to you being treated differently within that process. And algorithms aren't neutral. They reflect the preferences of the people who build them and use them. Mm -hmm. And this visa algorithm didn't suddenly create bias in the home office, but because of, but you know, it does accelerate and reinforce them because of the way that it works. So we need much more thought about preventing bias and there needs to be a thorough audit of these algorithms to ensure that they aren't perpetuating, perpetuating issues of inequality or, or, or systemic racism. And then the second issue that we work on is around the lack of transparency within um, government about how they're using these algorithms. We've had to take the Home Office to court to know more about how this Home Office algorithm works. And governments and councils must be 
transparent about how they're using the algorithm, what feeds them, how they work and how they're audited for bias. That's amazing that you're working in that space. And as you were saying, it, it shouldn't matter what your nationality is as to how you get treated. Um, and also just the transparency of that's going to be really important in going forward. So you've obviously had to, the threat of, of a legal case almost has, has forced people to start thinking about the algorithms and being more transparent in those. Do you think that these kind of ongoing threats will make people think more about designing responsible AI from the start? Because it feels a pretty crazy situation that, you, you know, suing or finding tech companies make them behave responsibly. Do you think there's something that might change going forward? I.e., do you think companies might actually think about responsible design from the outset rather than just when they're challenged? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are tons of companies out there doing it responsibly, and I hope that more adopt responsible business models. But data is a profitable business. Yeah, of course. I don't know that companies are willing to change that profitable business model for a less profit profitable one without being told to do it or mm. being made to do it by, you know, but perhaps I'm wrong. Oh, that makes me feel quite depressed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> In your opinion, are there any, I mean, do you think there are any organisations uh, out there or any tech companies that are doing the right thing, who are doing things in the way that you believe is, you know, is transparent and I just quite like to think that there are some out there but maybe, maybe there aren't I don't know any in your experience yeah. good yeah. question I bet there are but my work tends to focus on the ones that we have issues with but as I understand it there are loads of good uses out there of mass data sets and AI for sure from farmers growing better crops because AI uses data to tell them the best crop choices or the best hybrid seed choices or to help manage the impact of climate change but as I said I think the business model is part of the problem we need you know, we need to see a shift from these companies taking as much as they can to as little as they must to provide the service. And I think, you know, where the, the, the types of algorithmic decision making that I'm particularly concerned about are where it's used to assess citizens and to make life changing judgments about people like who stays in prison and who's denied a visa or who have benefits cut. I think that needs to be regulated and carefully managed and thoroughly thought through and open to scrutiny in public debate in a way that it hasn't been today. Okay, absolutely. So if people do want to start using AI technologies and using algorithms for decision-making or partnering with technology firms, whether in the health sector or not, what do you think that they need to look out for and what questions do they need to be asking? It, you know, because it's important that people are working with the right kind of organisations and especially in this conversation around transparency. Mm. What kind of things would you need to look out for if you were partnering up with a, an organisation or sort of venturing into that space? That's a great question. I think it depends slightly on the sector. But okay. the things that I would be asking are how are you auditing for bias? What happens to the personal data? How long are you keeping it for? Where are you keeping it? Who are you sharing it with? If it's a government contract or a council, is the private company or partner a fit and proper one? Does there need to be a consultation with the taxpayer? Those sorts of things, I think. Brilliant. And I think those are the main questions for me. Just, just lastly, we absolutely love what you um, are doing at Foxglove. Where can people find out more about you and what can people do if they want to get involved with your work? You mentioned your website earlier. Is, is that the best place to... Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, the website is definitely a good place to start, foxglove.org.uk, and we're on Twitter too, where we 
updates about our cases and work and our twitches at foxglove legal great so yeah so thank you so much this has been brilliant really really interesting and insightful and i do think it's absolutely amazing what you're doing is so so important um just before you go we just to return to the conference obviously you're talking at the anthropology and tech conference in um, october which is obviously online and for those who don't know yet can you just tell us what you'll be covering in your talk good question and not to avoid the question but things are moving so quickly due to the pandemic and who knows where we'll be in october but i'm hoping to talk along the lines of something to do with the implications of turning to technology and mass data solutions as a response to the COVID-19 crisis. And what are you most looking forward to at the conference? Is it, are there any fellow speakers that you're particularly keen to hear from? So now's such an important time for these discussions and I'm really pleased that they're taking place at the Anthropology and Technology Conference. We're seeing AI and data-driven decisions everywhere and it's really important that these systems are fair and unbiased and that we keep talking about it. So I'm really interested to hear from the other speakers on health, particularly Sam Shah, to hear his perspective both as a doctor and as someone who's helped kind of with uh, digitising the NHS. And I'm also always keen to hear from Nanny. Um, she heads the Digital Freedom Fund, which financially support some of Fox Club's work and she's a very good speaker so I'm looking forward to hearing that too. Great stuff yeah we're really excited about it. Thanks again Martha and um, we're really looking forward to seeing your talk at the conference and really appreciate your time today so thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, thank you very much for having me, looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Martha today. Do check out Foxglove at foxglove.org.uk and don't forget to join us at the conference online on the 9th of October. If you visit us now at anthtechconf.co.uk, you can sign up to our newsletter and we'll be in touch as soon as tickets go on sale. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd be really grateful if you could like it, subscribe and give us feedback on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Or please share with someone else who you think might enjoy it. Thank you so much. We'll be back again soon. Until then, have a lovely day.